What I love about talking to the OG reporters is the rigor that goes into developing sources, finding stories, and the time spent on the phone or shooting the breeze and playing a certain long game. It's something I deeply admire, especially as somebody who identifies as one of the world's worst reporters. So it was great to hear one of the best reporters, one of the great chroniclers of basketball, Jackie McMullen, talk about the work. When you've talked to 10 people and you think that's enough, talk to 10 more. Because, and you may only use a little snippet of what they told you. It may not, you know, it's often not even a quote. It's just a scene or a piece of information, just a little tidbit of something. And it's going to make the story better. Oh, yeah, that's right. Brought to you by Exit 3 Media. This is the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. Today I'm joined by Jackie McMullen, a writer for ESPN, a longtime columnist for the Boston Globe, my hometown paper. Her column, Headshot, was something I grew up seeing in the sports pages of the Globe as my dad cracked that newspaper and folded it back on itself with the precision of a sleight-of-hand artist. And there was Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, Mike Barnacle in the city section, who my dad loved, Peter Gammons, and then, of course, Jackie Mack. She's the author or co-writer of several books, including When the Game Was Ours, with Larry Bird and Irvin Johnson, better known as Magic Johnson, Gino, in pursuit of perfection, about UConn women's basketball head coach Gino Oriyama. And she is the last in a long line of incredible guest judges for the Best American Sports Writing Series. Series editor being the great Glenn Stout. In this episode, we talk about Jackie's early influences, what writers turn the light on for her, writing that teaches you something, how fear drove her and drives her, and of course, best American sports writing. I think you'll dig this, and we'll get there in a moment. Be sure to head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to subscribe to the monthly newsletter where I give out reading recommendations, cool articles, and an exclusive VIP code that gets you a, a monthly CNF and happy hour. Sometimes we just talk about something that's a, a theme. Other times they have guests, special guests, usually people who have been on the show, essay writers, memoirists, reporters, and we talk shop so you can pick their brains and put a little of that stuff in your cart so when you check out, you can get free two-day shipping on some pretty damn good insights. Newsletter's where it's at. I've deleted my Facebook accounts, uh, even my, my the personal one, which is just there so I could have the CNF pod one. And uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, and it's uh, borderline evil, I think. I, I, that's not news anymore. So I've deleted those accounts. I might not be too far away from deleting Instagram and Twitter. I don't know yet. And that should give you an idea of how insidious social media has become. But I'd like to think it's possible to grow a digital product of this nature without those terrible engines of destruction and manipulation. Stay tuned for my parting shot at the end of the show where I recount a major blunder where I should have lost my job this week 
and an update on issue two of the audio magazine, and also a new Patreon tier. There might be a few new folks joining the CNF and Rodeo, so why don't we get right into it with the one and the only Jackie McMullen. on in, in, your, in your life. Uh, uh, the Globe columnist Ray Fitzgerald was a, a big influence for you. Uh, when you were reading him, what was it about him that uh, lit, lit a fire and a spark with you? Well, I was just a kid, so mm-hmm. I think it was his storytelling abilities. Uh, I We had a rule in our house. You could, you could read the sports pages, but you had to read the rest of the newspaper first. That was my dad's rule. And so I learned a lot by doing that, learned a lot about the world and politics. And I got very interested in politics because of that. But I feel like I learned about writing from Ray Fitzgerald and reading him and just how he captured my imagination. And you, you would read something that he wrote and you felt like you were sitting right there. And as I got older and determined I'd really like to be a writer myself, I thought, how can I do that? And I was fortunate enough to grow up in the New England area. After Ray Fitz, there was Lee Monfield, who, by the way, did the exact same thing, wrote about the human condition, wrote about the human personality. And he, he's a good, good friend. Unfortunately, I never had the, the pleasure of meeting Ray Fitz. He passed away before I got a chance to meet him. But Monfield's one of my closest friends. And he, the way he could capture a scene and capture the pulse of what was happening, I thought, wow, how can I do that? And I understand uh, Catcher in the Rye was a formative book for you. When, uh, Isn't it for everyone? I think it, it is for everyone because I you're just, you're, right? Because you're just identifying exactly. with this character. Because when we're young, we're also a little uncertain and a little eccentric and a, a little unsure of who we are. We're trying to form our own identity. My son, exactly. who is not yeah. in our business at all, um, and who actually honestly was a, as a young guy, not much of a reader, now all of a sudden is becoming one. And he reread Catcher in the Rye and said, Mom, you're right. That's a spectacular book. But I guess it took him till he was 24 to really stop and think about it. I think before that, it was just an assignment in school. Yeah, it, that was the first book I truly fell in love with. And I just had a, a Holden just resonated with me and, and his his irreverence and his the way he the way he could just needle at Stradladder oh, and call right. him the secret slob. And then Stradladder just goes over his head because he's a meathead. Right. And I just, I loved it. It was it, the best way for me not to read a book in high school was for you to assign it to me. Right. And, but that, but that one, I devoured it. I'm like, oh, this is, it, it turned to a certain light. I'm like, oh, you can do this with language. Well, that's it. And you know, my dad was someone that I admire greatly. He's 95, still alive. God bless him. Oh, Both of my parents were big readers, but my dad, Whatever he was reading after he was done, I would try to read it. And I remember one of the ones I read was Winds of War by Herman Wook. I think you say it, Wook. Is that how you pronounce Herman Wook? W-O-U-K. Anyway, that was probably not the best book to be reading when you were nine or (laughs) ten. And I thought, (laughs) you know, and then he, I think there was a book by Faulkner around our house. And I tried to read that. and I was like, whoa. I don't know what's going on here. So some of it was a little over my head as a kid. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love that you you grew up in uh, in Westwood. Uh, it's uh, it, it must have been pretty pretty darn special, you know, given where you grew up to eventually, you know, 
cut your not only uh, cut your teeth at the globe, but to thrive at the globe. Oh, it was. I still tell everybody, I still can't believe it happened. I was a student at the University of New Hampshire. And back then, UNH had a great relationship with The Globe, mostly because of Jack Driscoll, who was the executive executive editor of The Globe and had a great relationship with one of my professors, whose name was um, Don Murray, was a professor of mine at UNH and had a great relationship with Jack Driscoll. So UNH had an automatic uh, spot with the uh, Boston Globe every summer. So for me, it was not in sports. It was in the news side. But of course, I wanted to be in sports. So I would do my my shift with uh, the news, but then I'd sort of hang around the sports department. And one of the other interns that summer was a gentleman named Ian Thompson, terrific writer who worked with me at the Globe for a bunch of years and then went on to the National, worked for the International Herald Tribune, worked for Sports Illustrated, just a, just a gifted, gifted writer who was so far ahead of me when we were both doing that at those internships. And he was the sports intern. So that's how I got my foot in the door at the Globe. And of course, you weren't supposed to be a graduate to do that internship program. But because I was playing basketball at the University of New Hampshire, I wasn't able to do these internships during the school year because I had basketball and it covered both semesters. So I was a little behind on my internships. So what I did was I deferred my graduation so I could be eligible for the summer internship. That was another professor of mine, Andy Merton, who thought that up pretty smart. So, of course, by halfway through the summer, everybody knew that I actually was graduating because I just never left there. My shift would be up and I would just stay for hours on end just in case something came up, you know. I love that. And I love that you brought up Andy Merton because that was a a note I made in reading the introduction to uh, the Best American Sports Writing. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could take us to that, that moment when you were a student at UNH studying under Merton and, you know, trying to find your voice as a, as a writer. Right. Well, Andy was a great writer in his own right. And, uh, but an excellent professor as well. And, uh, I was taking a magazine writing course. So I was a senior by that point. And it was, uh, it was a challenging course because Andy, I think Andy's feeling was, all right, the training wheels are off. Now you're going to graduate soon. You're going to hopefully go work somewhere to write. You have to know how to do this. And I would, you know, write these features and I would pass them in and, you know, red letters and send it back. Teach me something every time. Teach me something. And I thought, what, what the heck? But after a while, I understood what he was saying. You know, the whole point of, of writing a, a profile of someone or a feature or a story is you want the reader to finish and say, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wouldn't that be great every time you wrote something that someone would put it down after it was done and said, of course, now we're all online. But back in the day, for me, it was newspapers. You'd say, wow, I didn't know that. So I spent my entire senior year trying to get one time where Andy Merton said, yeah, you got it. And it was actually a story about a friend of mine who was an ROTC at University of New Hampshire. I think her name was Mary Brady. She was a wonderful young lady. And mm. she was going to jump out of an airplane. And she was terrified. And that's what I wrote about. And that's the one that finally got me to pass the test. Andy Merton finally gave me the thumbs up. Oh, that's great. It, in, in, embedded in that, of course, to get to the, that moment where you might be teaching someone something that they didn't already know about someone who might be a fairly prominent figure. Right. It's, a, it's like what you've harp, harped on in a lot of conversations you've had with other people is that you, re- you got to spend a lot of time and you, you got to make the extra phone call. 
That's right. And actually, I'm in the middle of doing a piece on Trey Young right now of the Atlanta Hawks. A very successful young guard who just so talented. But um, I'm knee deep in this story. I've talked with high school friends, college teammates, uh, old coaches, his parents. And I have learned so much about him. And I'm going to talk to Trey this weekend. So I, I feel like now I'm armed and ready for him. I, yeah, I, I love that. I, I love that kind of legwork of, you know, you talk to someone and you're like, well, can you give me maybe like three, maybe five more people to call? And then you just kind of start building a mosaic. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really the one of the more fun parts for me. I, I, I'm not crazy about cold calling and everything, but once I get going into the interview process and digging into people and really getting them to speak in terms of scenes and what things mean, it really is where the juice is for me. And I wonder 100%. maybe where the, where's the juice for you? No, no, it's, it's a hundred percent. I always tell people when you've talked to 10 people and you think that's enough, talk to 10 more because, and you may only use a little snippet of what they told you. It may not, you know, it's often not even a quote, it's just a scene or a piece of information, just a little tidbit of something. And it's going to make the story better. The problem is that sometimes you interview all these people and you may interview them at length. And then when the story comes out, you've only used a little bit of what they told you. And sometimes people get bummed out by that. That's the only drawback. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes they're like, you spent an hour with me, but you only used that one little, you, mm-hmm. you distilled everything I told you into one sentence or something. That's right. It, yeah. Yeah. I was talking to you know Pete Croato, who just... Uh, published his first book uh, from hang time to prime time about sort of the eighties NBA when, you know, David Stern was taking it to the next level. And he's very much like that of, you know, maybe you read an entire book, but it's, and it takes a little labor to do that. But in that book, there might be just one little thing that you just, you, you found that little, you were panning for gold and you found that nugget. And it's just like, Oh, that just made everything so much richer. There you go. That's it. And it's, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you do a story and you just, bang your head against the wall and you just never, or someone you call, you can't wait to talk to because you think they're the ones that are going to flush it out for you. And it turns out that's not the case at all. And then some people that you maybe weren't even sure was worth calling and they turn out to be the, you know, the, the one you just never know. Right. Have you ever found over the course of like making, you know, these dozens and dozens of calls sometimes that it can be easy to productively procrastinate by just saying like, all right, I, I'll get to the writing, but I, I need to make oh, a, a, gosh, another call. Yes. I'm guilty of that. Ask my editors. They'll always mm-hmm. say, are you done? I'm like, well, there's a few more people I need to call. And they're like, no, no, no. We need you to start writing. So guilty as charged on that. Right. And I, I love that you that you wrote that uh, exceptional writing transports us on journeys we never imagined, immersing us so thoroughly that we actually taste the dust. And uh I, when you're reading something or when you're doing the reporting, what's the, you know, how do you, how are you getting to that, to that moment as a, as a reporter to really put us there? So we are smacking our lips because there's dirt in our mouths. Right. So I used to be a little more subtle about it. Now, when I interview people, I just ask them so many questions and, and I can tell sometimes, you know, they'll tell me a story and I'll say, well, I want to go back to that story for a minute. Where were you? What were you wearing? And then I say to them, uh, forgive me, I'm a details person. And then they tell me, you know, some more. And I'll say, okay, thank you. But I've got to ask you some more. As I mentioned, I'm a crazy details person. And then they, they kind of laugh and they go along. <laughs> because details, and I learned that from Susan Canavan, who was the editor of my book, When the Game Was Ours, the book um, that was about uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and their relationship. 
she was just a terrific book editor. She's the one that said to me, details, give me more details. And it was, I, I learned a lot from Susan. Those details are so telling and so, so beautifully illustrative of character. And what I, you know, in watching some of the football games last weekend, uh, I heard, you know, Drew Brees, when he was hurt, when he was on the sidelines, he was still licking his fingers like right. he was going to get still in the play. huddle. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that was the muscle memory, even though he was hurt, like he was just doing it instinctively. And it's just like, what a telling detail of, of an obsessive person. Yeah, to... That's a great, that's a great detail. Did, did somebody write that or did you just hear him say it? I heard him say it. Like yeah. he what... just was like, you know, he was still so in it, even though he wasn't even suited up on the field. It was, he, he was still like, okay, well I'm getting ready for the next play. I'm dropping down on a knee, you know, ready, go. And he's still licking his fingers and he's on the sideline. It's that's crazy. fantastic. I bet every writer that covers Drew Brees is sorry they didn't get that themselves. <laughs> no kidding, right? Oh, it's, that's like the perfect little detail. It is. Um, and I also read that, you know, a, a big part of uh, what motivated you, especially early on, and I suspect probably your entire career, even to this day, was sort of a terror of failing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how, how has failing been a fuel that maybe burned clean for you and drove you to where you are today? Well, I was so... I felt inexperienced coming in because, as I had said earlier, I, I didn't have the occasion to do all the internships that most most you know journalists did do when they were in college to get themselves ready for the experience. And, you know, when I got done with my internship at The Globe, I walked into Vince Doria's office. He was the sports editor at The Globe at the time. And I said, look, I'm young. I'm cheap. I'm a girl. <clears throat> Give me a shot. And uh, to my surprise, he actually did. And I just I didn't feel I was prepared. I was looking at around at the people in the newsroom that I was working alongside. You're talking about Bob Ryan, Peter Gammons, Will McDonough, you know, Lee Monfield, Dan Shaughnessy, uh, Bob Duffy, Kevin DuPont. These, you know, these people are legends of our business. So I just thought, I got a lot of work to do. So I remember the first, uh, you know, I, I was not a beat writer for very long, but the year I did it, the Celtics practiced twice a day at the old Hellenic College. And you'd go in the morning, and all the journalists would go in the morning, and you'd interview all the players. And that was fine. I did that. But when I left, you know, I got back, and I was, you know, I didn't have a tape recorder back then. It's all longhand. I'm transcribing what I had. And I just had additional questions. And I thought, you know what? I should go back to that second practice. Suppose these other journalists go back to the second practice and something happens, you know, suppose Larry Bird breaks his leg and I got myself all worked up, you know? So I went back to the second practice. I was the only one there. And Chris Ford, who was an assistant coach was making fun of me. He's like, Hey Rook, you only come to the one practice. And, but I was allowed in back then, you know, it was all different. And of course now we never watch practice. You're not allowed in. This is, this is the good old days. We're talking the eighties. And um, so the only person, other person in the gym was Jan Volk, the general manager of the team. So I was sitting there, you know, by myself, just watching practice. And I had an additional question I wanted to ask Larry Bird after practice. So I was sitting there and Jan Volk came over and sat down with me. And we, you know, he started telling me about the team and talking with me, and whatever. And just the two of us in the gym. So the practice ended and they were all running off and Larry Bird was walking off. And I stopped and I said, Larry, I'm, you know, I introduced myself as, I'd been around him a bit. I hoped maybe he knew I was, but I wasn't sure. I had, you know, covered the team some before that, obviously. And I said, hey, I, I have a question, you know, do you mind? Do you have a second? Well, what had happened between the first practice and the second practice was Bird was unhappy about his contract. 
and he had arrived late um, to the team. And Jan Volk at one point said, I don't know where he is. Now, Larry didn't know that when he met the media in the morning. So he's like, oh, I was delayed, whatever, but I'm here now. I'm ready to go. Well, then he found out what Jan had said, and he was furious. So here's this, I forget how old I was, 26, maybe 27-year-old, you know, standing there asking him a question about, you know, I just want to make sure if you said this about why you were late. And he went off. Now, I'm the only one there. And he yeah. just went off on Jan Volk. Poor Jan Volk, who's a very wonderful man and a very good general manager and someone I consider a friend to this day. And But he went off on him. Very unusual for this to happen, but it did. Well, now I got to drive home. No cell phones, of course, back then. And Jan Volk, thankfully, that night we were sitting together, had given me his phone number. So I had to go home and call Jan. And Jan picked up and said, didn't we just talk together for about two hours? I said, yes, but I got to ask you about this. And I mean, it was a huge story. Now, yeah. the only reason I got it was because I was scared to death. That is the only reason. That and because I couldn't read my own handwriting. So there you go. <laughs> I love uh, love that. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, these days it's, Hard. I think it's probably always been hard to build relationships. Yes. Um, and, but you know, especially today. But I think it's always been a challenge. It's just different hurdles to get over, and um, you know, to have those conversations that don't end up in the paper, but they, but they build a certain measure of right. trust. Um, you know, how hard is that, or how is it? How do you navigate that? So you're building the trust, having those conversations, but still maintaining that critical distance that you will ultimately have to have to right. write. Well, it was so much easier in the, you know, they, I guess we'll call them the old days in the eighties and the nineties, because the teams were flying commercially. We were flying commercially often on their same flight. I mean, almost always you were on their flight, which meant the flight was delayed. You were in the airport with them. And so you could sit in the airport and talk with them a little bit about something. You know, you were usually staying at the same team hotel. So you'd go down and have breakfast in the morning. There was only one place to have breakfast. So chances are you'd run into one of the players having breakfast or whatever. Of course, none of that's true anymore because the team saw flight private charters, no journalists on, on the plane, as it should be. I understand that. And uh, they leave the night after the game. You know, they often leave within two hours after the game is completed. The journalists, we often have to go out the next morning because we obviously don't have a private charter. So, and then the other big difference is, when I was young in the 80s and even somewhat in the 90s, you could show up two hours early to practice and players would be coming in and players like McHale were in there already putting in time. A lot of the guys were Reggie Lewis, you know, those guys, they were putting in their time. But it gave you a chance to maybe have a conversation with them. Practices were open and then post practices were open. So we just had a lot more opportunity to develop these relationships you're speaking of. But it's not impossible today. It's just you just have to be a little smarter about it. What I what I always remind everybody is, and of course with the pandemic, it's very different now because we're not we have no access. But but on a normal year when there is still access, I always tell everybody you've got a locker room full of people. You've got fourteen players, and the fourteenth player knows everything that's going on with that team just as much as the first player. So the best player on the team. Yes, you have to keep track of him because every time everything he says is news, right? But but if there was something you wanted to know about, if there was a, a, a hap something that happened that you wanted more details about, the fourteenth player, even though he may never play, was still there. And so I always tell people like, don't make the mistake of going into a locker room and focusing on the same four or five people all the time. 
Uh, one of the reasons I have such a great relationship with Rajam Rondo is his rookie year when he wasn't playing, I used to talk to him all the time. I thought he was super interesting. He was different. He, you know, he was frustrated because he wasn't playing. And, and oftentimes when I sat and talked with him, I didn't use any of it. It just enabled me to get to know him. And when he became, you know, Rondo of 2008, who helped the Celtics win a championship, I already had a relationship with him. So I think that's for young writers. Just remember, if there's 14 guys in there. They're all part of the team. And just because they don't play, you should still be developing a relationship with them. Because they may never play, but someday they may be one of the stars. Reggie Lewis, another great example. Of course, I already knew Reggie from college, right? Exactly right. Yeah, you don't know who they might end up being when they become a star. And then they're going to remember, like, oh, yeah, I remember when Jackie, you know, took the time to talk to me for 15 minutes when the huddle was around, you know, uh, Kevin Garnett and or, you know, or whatever. And people remember these things because, I mean, they feel, especially at at such an elite level, they start to feel like just avatars, but they are people. And oh, ultimately, so, yeah. so you Absolutely. just, when you remember that, it's like, oh yeah. And then people, they'll remember that a few years later. It's like playing that long game with mm-hmm. them. And, you know, you're going to be able to tell a beautiful story or, or and spin a great yarn. Right. And, you know, sometimes like Ennis Cantor last year was not the most prominent player on the Celtics, but he was so fun to talk to. He loved the media. So everybody enjoyed him. That was easy. But some of these other guys who were quiet and, you know, a little more self, maybe, I don't know, controlled or what have you. And some of the, the, the best stars, they don't like to share much either. And so sometimes that's a long game. I think I spent three years getting Patrick Ewing to actually trust me. I think it, honest to God, took three years. I would go into the Knicks locker room and it would be pregame because back then pregame was allowed. And he would immediately see me and go, no, no interviews. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not here to talk to you. And I'd go and I'd sit with Alan Houston or someone else and, you know, shoot the breeze with them. And I, I did that, honest to God, I think almost for three years before he finally, when I walked in, he'd smile and say hello, and we'd shoot the breeze, you know. And then yeah. finally, after three years, I said, hey, come on, let, let's do this. And, uh, you know, it was one of my, I, one of the ones that I appreciated the most because I know how private Patrick is. And his story, with as it relates to Boston, is not an easy one. He went through a lot here in Boston. You know, people, when he did not choose to go to Boston College, people you know, did horrible things, held up signs at his games and Patrick can't read and just horrible racial things. And, you know, he went through a lot. And so I can understand why anyone from Boston made him a little nervous, but I would count Patrick among all the players I've ever covered as someone that I have a great relationship with to this day. And and when you're, you know, developing these relationships too, and then you you um you know sort of spin off and uh you know say co-write books with say like Shaquille O'Neal or right right you know Larry and Magic like what Ooh. is um that's how a does, slippery slope very slippery. right yeah. yeah how did you navigate navigate that terrain well it's not easy and you know I was fortunate with with the game with ours with the Larry and Urban they were retired so I wasn't yeah. covering them anymore it made a huge difference. Cause it's difficult to do otherwise. And, you know, I had probably, I mean, I, I don't think I wrote anything horrible about Larry, but at, you know, in the past I had to write things that maybe were difficult. That was true with Shaq as well. In fact, Shaq mentioned it when we ended up doing the book we did together, it was his final season in Boston. And uh, we didn't know that at the time he was planning on playing longer, but I don't know if you remember, he had a horrible Achilles injury that ended up having, he had to have major surgery on. 
you know, I, I kept saying to Shaq, like, we're doing this book, but it has to be separate from how I would talk about you or write about you as a member of the Celtics. And so what we decided was I just wasn't going to cover the Celtics. It just made sense. And so I didn't. That year, I really did not write about them, and didn't write about Shaq at all because I was in a business relationship with him. It's it's tricky. Very, very tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine that's that's got to be tough because then once that sort of the 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 partnership is over like how do you then go back to being the you know the reporter who can be critical of him you know in in that in that way that you've yeah yeah. but it's interesting because you know I've done a a bunch of books now I guess and some of the people you can't it's difficult but some of the others you know like Gino Ariema I did a book with Gino Ariema I don't really cover women's basketball a lot although I love it and I follow it closely but we don't, I wouldn't say we have much of a relationship. I don't mean that in a bad way. The relationship didn't continue so much. You know, it did in the beginning afterwards, but then, you know, over time I'm covering the NBA, he's doing what he's doing. And, and so we kind of went, went on our way to some degree. Um, so, you know, it doesn't always carry over, I guess. Irvin, you know, Irvin was great when we did the book and, uh, but you know, he's, he's done a lot of projects since. And when I see him, it's fantastic. And, you know, he, I did a, an event with Irvin and Larry before the pandemic, probably about a year and a half ago. Uh, they did a private event and I was the MC. you know, and that was a lot of fun. And he was thrilled to see me, but I don't talk to him regularly, you know, so it, it doesn't always turn out that way. There's a, you know, uh, the NBA writer, uh, Ben Cohen for Wall Street Journal. He, he, when I had him on the show and he, his book, The Hot Hand came out, you know, he told me uh, this great anecdote of, catching clay thompson like coming out of the locker room and walking to the bus and it was like about a 10 minute conversation it ended up being like one of his better pieces and right. he you know got on a plane you know goes to you know oakland and only for this he knew he'd probably have about a 10 minute window to catch him at this one particular moment and when you were talking about just kind of beating the pavement and trying to find the ways where you can actually right. catch them when other people can't it, that reminded me of it. And it's like, okay, that's the hustle. That's like the 21st yeah. century hustle, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's difficult. You know, it's funny you mentioned the, the Warriors because they, for the most part, Clay, Steph, Draymond, they're pretty good. They really, and Durant, too, for that matter. And uh, I, I did a story, was it last year? I think it was the year before. And it was all about, you know, closing out games and, and what your mindset is when you're trying to, you know, take the big shot, the last shot. And I wanted to get Curry and I wanted to get Durant. And they were in Washington, D.C., but there were just too many media there. So then they went to play Boston and they were practicing at Harvard. And it was a Sunday. And so there were just a lot less media there that day. And I remember because my husband was running. He was meeting me there. I forget where we were. I must have been staying in the city or something. He was running to meet us. And so he came in and Kevin Durant's like, who's that? I go, "Uh, that's my husband. So he's like, did he run here? I'm like, yeah. And so that, for whatever reason, was the icebreaker. You know, Durant gave me a great interview. But the Curry interview at Harvard was the best interview of the whole story. And it was him talking about uh, how when, you know, when Kyrie hits that big shot in the finals, when it's Cleveland versus Golden State, that Curry's like, I, you know, as much as I shouldn't have done this in my head, I'm like, I got to come back. I got to make this. And he took me through the blow by blow of what he was thinking and why he did what he did. And of course he missed it as people will probably remember. So that day was just the right atmosphere, you know, 
It was a Sunday they were done. They had, they were at Harvard, not a place they normally are. It wasn't, they weren't in their home gym so they could sneak off. You know what I mean? It was just, sometimes you just got to get the right feel. Now I, there are times I've, I've flown to a city to interview someone and I'm there for four days and I don't get what I need. It happens. It happens all the time, actually. Who are some of the the writers, you know, com, coming up, maybe mid-career or even the ones coming up, like, you know, coming up to mid-career that are, you're, you're reading their work and you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is some good stuff. And this is, uh, this makes me optimistic about the future of, uh, of some, you know, sports and sports journalism. Oh, there's a lot out there. I mean, I mean, I, I Kevin Arnvitz, I guess, isn't super young, but I just think everything he writes is terrific. And, you know, I actually... Uh, chose one of his stories for the the best American sports writer. He he wrote a story about the Kings executive Jeff David, who stole just millions from the Sacramento Kings. It's just an incredible story, and so he's someone, you know. I see it. I, I like Ben Cohen. You mentioned Ben Cohen. I like I like reading Ben's stuff. There's a young guy uh, Logan Murdoch who just went to the Ringer, who I think has a really good eye and has some really interesting thoughts and mixes music and 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 sports and I mean I I could name a ton i'll leave somebody out but uh right. there's a lot of great writers out there yeah and, and speaking of best american sports writing you know when you were given you know the pile that has been curated by mm-hmm. by glenn and that's in your wow. lap you know what you know take us to that that moment of having to okay you know you're making the starting lineup and you know you and you guys you guys aren't so like yeah you know, what was that the calculus you were going through as you were reading those pieces well, the big thing everyone should know is when you get the stories, nobody's, there's no byline. So you have no idea who wrote them. I don't know if people know that. But so when I get the stack of, of the articles, I don't know wh- which publication they're in, and I don't know who wrote them. Now, obviously, in the case of Kevin Artovitz, because that story was so spectacular, that was one I had flagged. I mean, I knew a, a year ahead of time I was going to do this. So I flagged that story over the course of the year. So I knew exactly who wrote that story. And Glenn loved it as much as I did. So that was a slam dunk, right? Um, another case of that was Elizabeth Merrill, another colleague of mine from ESPN, wrote this amazing story about Shelly Pennefeather, who was a great basketball player at Villanova and ended up becoming a cloistered nun. And how her mother would only come to see her once every 10 years. And she writes this incredibly poignant story about Shelly Pennefeather and the choices she made in her family. And the fact that at this 10-year visit, her mom, who was, I think, in her 70s or 80s, knew that this was probably the last time she might ever see her, you know. And so that story, when I read it in real time, I'm like, well, this is amazing. And then there was another story on Venus Williams in the New York Times magazine. And I didn't remember who the woman was that wrote it. It's Elizabeth Weil. I hope I'm saying her name properly, W-E-I-L. And I, I read that over the course of the year, and I thought, wow, that's a great story. So when I read that again without the byline or the name, I already was familiar with that. But in, in most cases, even if I had read them before, I wasn't exactly sure where I read it, who wrote them. So that made I, I always makes my conscience feel a little easier, if you will. But I, I will tell you a quick story. So Bill Plasky from the LA Times, who I think is the greatest columnist in the country right now, just terrific. And uh, he's a good friend of mine. We were on Around the Horn together. I, I adore him. There was a story that he had submitted or it had been chosen by Glenn. I knew it was his and I loved it. It was great. But in the end, it's so hard. You're trying to pare it down to a certain amount. And and Bill's story that I knew was Bill's story, even though you know his name wasn't on it. I just had read it before. It wasn't going to make the cut. And I was 
tearing myself up because this is someone who's writing I appreciate. It's not because I like the guy. It's because he's terrific. And right. I was feeling terrible about it. But you know what happened? When we finally picked the final, I forget how many stories it is. Didn't you know there was a story by Bill Plaschke in it anyway? And I didn't know it was his. <laughs> so that's how sometimes things work out. He wrote this incredible column about people with Alzheimer's getting together and holding baseball mitts and just reliving some of their memories through baseball. I mean, it was such an incredible story. I should have known it was his, but I was right. so pleased. I was so pleased when I you know, later found out. So the trick of it is that you don't know who's writing them or where they come from. And, uh, you know, it was such an amazing collection and so, so difficult to pare it down. And, you know, I was trying, you know, a lot of the stories um, are tragic and, and you want to make sure you're not giving people just one story after the nets of tragedy. There has to be some upbeat mm -hmm. stories. You know, you try to balance it in that way. At least I did. And, and, you know, sometimes there were stories that were writing about the same thing. And that was kind of interesting. So you had to, you know, let's say three people made the finals of, uh, like there were three stories about mountain climbing and, and, you know, the tragedy that can happen when you're, you know, climbing to the top of these world-class mountains. And so then my charge became, and again, didn't know who any of them were. And in the end, I ended up pick, pick, picking Joshua Ham's story, uh, Chaos at the Top of the World, which was in GQ. And it just, it, the other two were fantastic, but this just, you know, you had to pick, you couldn't have all three of them in, Right. Yeah. So that's, those are some of the things that uh, I, I wrestled with. Would you say that when you were reading these, like it, your barometer it, in a sense, in a sense, took you back to what Andy Merton told you about, oh, you know, sure. teach me something. Yeah. The problem was all of them taught me something because <laughs> they were all terrific and they were all so well-written and the, the subject matter just would blow you away. Like one of the stories I just could not believe was it was called the bicycle thief it was by Stephen Leckert and it was from Chicago magazine and I think we were worried that we couldn't include it because there might have been even some you know proprietary issues but this story like you couldn't make this story up what this guy did he was stealing money from banks on a bicycle but he wasn't the first bank he stole the money from he threw the money away I mean it was just the craziest story so they the, the, the thing that I realized as I started going through these pieces was, you know, most of them were not a profile of LeBron James or a story about Aaron Rodgers or a story about, you know, Gordy Howe or, you know, it wasn't like that. I mean, the, the two stories that really just still haven't left me, one was about a, a prison, the Angola prison in Louisiana. It was just the most brutal story. And that was a story when you referenced talking about tasting the dirt, John Griswold wrote that. And it was, Oh my goodness. It was unbelievable. And it's about a prison rodeo and it just like haunting. And I still think about that story a lot because he really brought it to light and, and the, just the darkness of the whole thing. And then the other one was, um, it was about shooting a tiger and it was by Brian Burrow. It was in vanity fair. And it was about this village and this tiger who had been pushed out of its habitat by all the, you know, the development in its area and had killed some people. And so I'm reading this piece and I'm like, oh yeah, well, they got to kill, they got to kill this tiger. And then I'm like, oh no, no, they got to save this tiger. And I went through this piece and I changed my mind about five times about what should happen to this tiger. 
I mean, if that's not good writing, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's very much like Orwell shooting an elephant too. The echoes right. of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the yeah, what what I've found of late, I think um, a lot of people, especially maybe uh, you know younger reporters and writers uh, who want to do this kind of thing, I I, I think there's a maybe a lack of rigor when it comes to reading and, and, and some people just don't know, like, how do you come up with a good story? And the fact of the matter is, it's like when you read a collection of this nature, it starts tuning your antenna to different frequencies mm-hmm. uh, and you realize, okay, Oh, these magazines are publishing this kind of story. It's not just like the New Yorker or, or um, you know, or outside magazine. There are these other little things and you start like, okay, I can look there. I can look there. I got to read these things. And then you're starting to see that there's stories everywhere. You just got to be willing to kind of, to pound the pavement, as I've heard you say. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes you, you you have a story and you think, well, this, this might be okay. And it turns out to be more magnificent than you could ever imagine. And sometimes you say, ah, I want to do this story. And you know, it just turns out to be another story about another athlete. And that's always disappointing when that happens. And, uh, but when you, when you can sink your teeth into something different and, and look at it differently and try to get inside the mind of, of he or she that, you know, who are performing. I mean, one of the other stories, my goodness, was about a a woman who was going to end her life because she had this terrible affliction that was, and it was, oh my gosh, takes your breath away. Now who would ever think about that? You know, and I've never written about mountain climbers. I've never written about people who track tigers. I've never written about rodeos. I've never written about a significant amount of things that were in this collection. And uh, you, you wrote too that exceptional reporters will continue to generate captivating stories and superb writing will live on. And I, I loved hearing you, well, hearing, like, you know, reading, reading that. And um, so for, for someone who's been doing this for, for so long and is still doing it at a high level and, and reading the amazing stuff that's coming out, coming up the pipeline, you know, where does your optimism lie in terms of, you know, what, you know, what we see, what we're hearing and what we're reading? Well, because, you know, this, this collection proves it. There's just so many talented people who are curious. I wonder why that happened. I wonder what that's about. And the curiosity and the, and combined with their own imagination will take you places that you would never consider. And those are the stories that most of us like to read. I mean, that is one of the remarkable things I think about this collection. Other than Venus Williams, I'm trying to think if there was anybody in this collection that people have heard of. Seriously, I'm, I'm going through it. And let me go through it right now. I mean... I don't think so. I mean, if you if you've heard of Shelly Pennefeather, God bless you. I've heard of her because I'm a college women's college basketball fan. But I'm going through this. I don't believe there was any you know major. There were, you know, we, we were writing about grandmaster chess people, writing about people with Alzheimer's, writing about. I, I mean, just go through the list. An Olympian that didn't even come close to meddling, and and that to me, I, I like that. You know. I like that. It works for me. And what's encouraging about that, too, is those are the people you can get really good access to. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. I mean, the one thing, the big challenge for young people today is the the really, the truly, you know, 1% athletes in each sport, they've, they've realized, well, I'm going to control my brand and I'm going to uh, market my own brand. I'm going to create my own production company. 
you're you're not going to be able to just talk to me anymore. And uh, you know, Tom Brady is someone I think of. LeBron, yeah. Although LeBron still makes himself available, and Tom does too. You know, on the regular media days, it's not like they are stiff arming. But there's no you're not you're not seeing as many long form pieces about either of those guys because they, in fairness, they're you know they've got their own image, they've created their own image, they've created their own production companies. They're you know Tom, we got Tom versus Time, we got uh, the shop, and uh, you know Kevin Durant's got his own production company now. He's got his own podcast, so it's going to make um, access to the really the top one percent even more difficult. And yet I I have this discussion with these guys all the time as good as some of this stuff is. And I think LeBron and LeBron's the best at it. I mean, I think they've done just an amazing job. Uh, we can still tell their story better. I believe that I do. I really do. And uh, with the, you know, with a few exceptions, I mean, Tom versus time, that was pretty interesting too. The last dance with Jordan, that was amazing. You know, those, those projects are incredible, but for the most part, pro athletes who want to control their own narrative, it's a mistake because I don't think it always plays out the way they they want. Yeah, I was it was going to bring up the last dance too because you know, Jordan, of course, his production company was you know involved in it. I, I'm not sure how heavily involved or how heavy handed the editorial content was through filtered through that, but it's one of those things where you got to read the credits at the end and be like, oh, as authentic as I felt that was, like it still had he was still involved in it, and that creates a a a, a filter and a conflict of interest to the story that. You know, at least as a viewer or as a reader, you just have to be aware of. I guess so. But I mean, I, I think they covered a lot of the main issues when he wouldn't, uh, you know, denounce Jesse Helms, uh, mm-hmm. the the Republicans wear sneakers too. I mean, they, I feel like they hit on all the points that maybe more controversial points. Certainly they hit on the, the you know, the wild rumors about Jordan stepping away from the NBA because of his gambling connections. They, they hit that pretty hard, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a yeah, it's a credit to. I guess when you've been so far removed from it, you know, maybe there's, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe maybe nothing to lose. I, I maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but at this point, it's just like oh, I've controlled the narrative for so long. Maybe it's time to put it in the hands of the true storytellers. Right. Yeah, I, I liked it, and I, I mean, I covered Jordan during all those years. I know Jordan pretty well, and I, uh, you know, again, teach me something. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about that. And you know what? I forgot. You forget. How insane the Bulls were. I mean, Dennis Rodman is like going to Vegas in the middle of a championship run. I mean, it's insane. Just crazy. Yeah, Yeah, I forgot about that. I lived it, but I forgot about it. No kidding. I know. It's amazing what the time dilation will do to these kind of things. Like when you're 20 years removed from it, you're like, oh my God, that happened? (laughs) I loved The Last Dance though. For me, it was was just, um, you know, for me, a, a literal walk down memory lane. Yeah, and, uh, I, I really enjoyed the insights from everybody. And, and I understand the frustration of Pippen and Robin and some of those other guys who felt like their story wasn't told completely. I think especially Pippen, um, you know, he got treated a little harshly in that. Um, but but Jordan loves Pippen. So it's not like, you know, Jordan, his truths are pretty unvarnished most of the time. Speaking of, you know, stories, and we were talking about like, you know, where people can find them, um, you know, where, how do you go about curating, you know, a story idea and then, um, you know, keeping track of it and and then pursuing it? It's very more, it's just more difficult now. I, I try to talk to people a lot. I call people, you know, I don't like to, I mean, GMs and coaches, especially now, it, it's more difficult now because my normal, my normal, you know, mode of operandus, if you would, would be 
there's a game at the bar, the Boston Garden, the TD Garden. I show up three hours early, and the opposing team is always out there working out their players and the assistant coaches, so some of whom are ex-players that I covered, whomever. You go there, you sit down, you start talking to them, you start just shooting the breeze, really. And that often leads to something that you didn't expect. I mean, that's how I ended up with this mental health series. I Houston was in town. John Lucas, who I had covered for many, many years, um, he was a player, and then he was you know, in charge of an addiction center, and then he was a coach. And we started talking about something, and I pointed to a player and said, what's going on with him? And he said, ah, oh, it's the same old story. It's mental health. It's this, it's that. And I said, so how big of a deal is that? He said, it's the biggest deal. I said, really? And we started talking about it. And that's what was the genesis of me, what ended up being a four-part series. It took me almost a year to report and write. And I always make sure I thank John Lucas for that because he's the one that really opened my eyes to like, this is right in front of you. How come nobody's talking about this? And uh, I, I love to, uh, you know, you, you said, I just love a good story. There's so many good ones. Every time I think about retiring, I'm like, ah, but I haven't done that one yet. You know, mm. there's always a good story, another story to tell. And so, you know, that being said, you know, what, uh, you know, what are those stories you're, you're looking to tell in, in this next sort of, uh, you know, this next phase of your, of your career? Well, I don't know. That's the beauty of it. I haven't mm-hmm. met this. St- I might not have even met the story yet. It's it. Um, I will say it's it's just really difficult to operate um, during this pandemic because you just you're talking to people over the phone or over Zoom, and uh, you know I've always found the best way to get people to really talk to you and really open up to you is to sit with them and have a conversation and to look at each other and to see someone's reaction. And so I found it. I found this a little more challenging. I'm looking forward to uh, the pandemic ending (laughs) so that we can get back to business. And I hope, you know, the big fear all of us have, all the journalists have, is that, you know, the players and the coaches and everyone have gotten used to this post-game Zoom, no access to the locker room, you know, what's going to happen when this ends? And they've, everyone's assured us, no, 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 we'll go back to the way it was. I just hope that that's true. Right. And, and to have the to be have that in-person conversation where your hands are just like in your pockets and your notebooks in your back pocket, you know, yeah, those kind of exactly. things where, you know, this we're just shooting the breeze here, you know, may, might right. be might will lead to something down the road. But, yeah, it's hard mm-hmm. to do that without in person because, you know, who who knows what you're recording or, you know, you have exactly. to be very much more forthcoming or forthright. Yeah, it's just different. It's different. Yeah. And it's it's, you know, everybody's facing it. It's not unique to me or to you. Everybody in the business has had to deal with it. And, um, and yet great stuff coming out still. So that's, that's what I, I, I go back to my faith in all the journalists in our, in our, in our, uh, brethren here. Of course. Yeah. And, and no more illustrative than that than best American sports writing and what you were able to curate and put in front of us. Um, and so we could enjoy that and be inspired by, by what's out there, what's being done and what will still come down the line. So the great, great work and, yeah, uh, just it's always a, uh, what a thrill, what a thrill to talk to you and talk shop, Jackie. Oh, I enjoyed it, Brendan, and uh, just so excited for everybody that was in this. What, what I hope is not the final, uh, you know, version of the Best American Sports Writing, but I was just in awe of everybody that made the book, and believe me, in awe of many who didn't. And you just wish you could put everybody in there. That was a long time coming, that conversation with Jackie. And I had to 
big, big testament to her endurance and the willingness to, to do it when it seemed like it wouldn't happen. So that, that uh, it's great. Someone of Jackie's stature, she could have definitely said, you know what, uh, can't do it. But she did. So uh, very nice when people like Jackie come by CNF Pod HQ. She's the type of person who headlines the festival. So a big thanks to Jackie and to you, of course, for listening. can never forget you, man. This show is a production of Exit 3 Media and everything by me. That's production and editing, you know, you name it. This guy. You're going to want to get on that newsletter list because as I flirt with phasing out social media altogether, it's going to be the only way to stay plugged into the CNF and community. And that and also the other way to plug in is through the Patreon page and those that just goes out to people who are in, who are members, and they get some pretty darn good goodies, let me tell you. I started a new tier, a $2 a month tier that is audio magazine only. $24 a year gets you access to the two issues that will come out in 2021. From there, it goes up to tier two now, which is the $4 a month tier, and that uh, gets you transcripts and other rando things I post to that page, and of course, the access to the audio magazines, and so forth. Shop around. There's a five, five total now. Go for it. Connect four. Shop around and support your CNF and writers. Also, oh, I forgot to forgot to mention this. I didn't even type it up into my little script here, but I'm still doing up till, up till the time we hit uh, 110 written reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Write a review. Take a screenshot of that review once it has been published and then email that to the show, creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com and I will edit and coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words and I will start a dialogue and go from there. So that I believe we're at 103, so there's seven slots. If you got something you're looking to workshop, looking to level up and see what the whole CNF experience is to have me in your dugout, uh, leave a leave a nice review, and we'll get it done. Sound good? Good. I'm glad. Submissions are starting to come in for the summer issue, man. Very excited. I'm not going to read them yet, but it's encouraging. And I, I know there's a few more that are that people are honing that I've that I've spoken to. I'm gonna ha- have a poet too, working on three summer poems that are going to be uh, interspersed throughout the whole thing. So it's going to come together pretty well, man pretty excited remember the deadline is march 21st guidelines are glued to the top of brendanomero.com hey so at the top of the show i tease that major blunder and it was a fact-checking blunder on my part i didn't do a good enough job of fact-checking a column i ran from a writer i didn't dig deep enough into the sources the writer provided and fully vet out everything and get really into the weeds since i lost my helper back in may i don't have the bandwidth i used to have to fact check the columns that come in like i used to because now i have to on fact check the letters to the editor and and everything and people sure as hell like to uh use questionable sources and have questionable facts, and formulate very strong opinions uh, based on questionable sourcing. And it, it takes a lot of bandwidth, a lot of energy. And 
naturally some things slip through the cracks and some big things slip through some pretty massive cracks in, in a column. Let's just say lawyers were notified. I fully expected to get fired. I mean, I'm only part-time anyway, and Gannett papers don't have much use for opinion pages. So I figured there was, if there was ever an excuse to cut costs, this was the opportunity. But my boss was, all things considered, pretty chill about the situation, and we settled on this being a teaching moment. So I've been pretty obsessed with figuring out how to fact check better and develop that skill because it is a skill and I, I really let the writer down I let my boss down and yeah I let myself down too really shook my confidence for a few days I mean I'm 40 and I've been in this mess for 16 years and I've been fired before uh, but that was because I called my publisher cheap and he didn't like that very much so I started thinking I'm like one of those losers that is unemployable and entitled and kind of pathetic and if I'm being honest I still think I'm pretty pathetic but I'm taking this moment to get better a failure that'll help level up the enterprise you know we're often not allowed to make mistakes and more often the only way we grow is through mistakes so I'm happy that this mistake wasn't the a trip to the gallows which would only further make me just feel like crap and probably would paralyze any further developments. So it was nice to be able to make a mistake and not have it cost me anything aside from a little bit of pride, a lot of pride. Maybe that's my issue too. Anyway, so that happened and here we are. I have some thoughts about social media and the like in uh, reading uh, Jaron Lanier's book on the thing and watching The Social Dilemma. But I'm going to save them for another time as this is dragging on and I'm sure your your kid is getting back in the car from practice and you'll probably want to put on something else. So I'll just end with this. Stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. See ya. <laughs>